Well, we're in Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, we're in part 38, uh, part 38, so if you've uh, journeyed along with us, I know many of you have, uh, you've journeyed with us through uh, the Hebrews study, and so there's been some amazing stuff that we've walked through and talked about, and so it's just an opportunity for us to uh, learn uh, here from Hebrews, and so we've been 38 weeks in Hebrews, which is a long time. Uh, we've got a few more weeks left, and then we'll, uh, we'll move uh, out of Hebrews, but we still have a few weeks left. And so as we get to chapter uh, 12 here in the middle part, last week Pastor Tony talked about uh, discipline. He talked about uh, persecution and uh, talked about how uh, we work through that and how God uses suffering in our life <coughs> Excuse me to, uh, to grow us and to draw us unto Himself and to lead us and teach us. And so tonight... We'll continue in that same vein as we continue in chapter 12. And so as we get started tonight, the first blank on your handout says that the spiritual life is like a long-distance run. You see, in uh, chapter 12, verse 1, he begins to talk about life as a race. And he talks about running the race and talks about participating. Uh, says, we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight uh, and uh, sin which clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then he talks about looking to Jesus, and that's how we do that. But you see, your life and my life as we walk with God, it is a long-distance run. It is not a sprint. If you've been saved for any length of time, you completely understand that as you walk with God, that there's going to be times in your life where you feel absolutely as close as you've ever felt to God, right? And then there's going to be times in your life to where you feel distant from God. And so there's these ups and downs, these mountains and these valleys that take place in our life. And we can't allow emotions uh, or circumstances or situations to dictate our definition of who God is and our walk with Him. Amen? And so as we look at this walk and this journey that the writer of Hebrews here is referencing back to, it is a long-distance run that, you know, it's, again, just been said many times, but it's like Eugene Peterson said, it's a long obedience in the same direction, that we have to be focused on the goal at hand, which in verse 2, of course, is Jesus, and that we have to stay committed to that, and that there will be days where it's easier than others that we walk with God, but it is a long path. It's a long journey. Many people, you know, many people have been saved for a long time. If God intended for you to be perfect when you got saved, then you would instantly go to spend eternity with Him at that moment, right? But that's not how that works. God's sanctifying us. God is growing us into who He wants us to be. And there's a long time for us. I've been saved for 21 years this year. Many of you have probably been saved a lot longer than that. And so as we think about that, it, it is a long-distance run. And God's plan for us, as we think about, as the writer talks about in verse 2, verses 1 and 2, that this is a race, God's plan is not for us to limp over the finish line. You know, I, I've run into people in the past, and, and they say, oh, you know, well, I've served my time. I'm good. I'm saved. And so, you know, I'm just concerned about my children. Or, you know, I've, I've served my time, and so I don't have to participate in all those things that going at church. Well, that's not how that works. God doesn't save us in order for the end of our, our walk, the end of our journey, if you will, as Pastor Tony talked about this morning, that we would simply barely get to the finish line or that when we uh, step into eternity that we would trip and fall over the tape at the end. No, that's not God's plan for your life. God's plan for your life and for my life is that we would burst through at the end. 
accomplishing all that God has laid out for us, that we would be able, because of what He has given us, through His Spirit, through His power, and we'll see through His strength here in these verses, that God would give us the endurance, as He talks about in verse 1, to make it all the way through, that we would run through the tape at the end, that we wouldn't limp through as we get to the end of what we know as life. And so the writer of Hebrews has just finished encouraging uh, the recipients here that discipline and discouragement are all part of the journey. Now, if you've interacted with humans at all, ever, you've had discouragement, right? I mean, that happens. People let you down. You let people down. Tough things happen in life. I mean, that's just the nature uh, of life. Pastor Tony mentioned this morning about uh, Fox News. And if you turn that on, you're going to look at that and see some discouraging things. That's just how that works. And so all of us have experienced that. And as a follower of Jesus, uh, there's been times where God has disciplined us to be a child of God. There's been times where we have gone astray and we've been disciplined. And there's been times where we've attempted something for God or we've been involved in something at church and it just didn't go the way that we thought or wanted it to go. And we became discouraged. I'm going to raise my hand first, so we'll break the ice. Has anyone in here ever been discouraged? I have. Anybody else? That's happened, right? That happens a lot because that's life. And so the writer of Hebrews, hopefully tonight this will encourage you, uh, because the writer of Hebrews says, look, it's normal. And I think a lot of times for us when we, we look at that and we say, hey, well, you know, uh, I'm not encouraged, I'm discouraged, I'm tired, we'll get to exhaustion in a second. And we don't, we don't understand, I don't think, how to properly or how to process that in a healthy manner. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight. So if you're here and you're tired, not physically but spiritually or emotionally, or if you're here tonight and you're discouraged, hopefully this will help you process some of that. You see, when we encounter situations in our life such as discipline or discouragement, we have two choices. We can either play the victor or we can play the victim. Now, the world, the world is really, really good at playing the victim. That's become very prevalent in our society today, right? Is bad things happen to us. We all have discipline and discouragement in our life. Everybody deals with it. Most of you, if not all of you, raised your hand when we poll the audience. And, uh, and we all have a choice when those bad things happen, when we're discouraged. We can either say, uh, in, you know, the victim says, well, woe is me. We can look at that and say, you know what, life is terrible. Everybody's against me. I, nothing ever goes my way. Woe is me. And so what happens for those people is most oftentimes, if not every time, they blame the situation. Oh, well, if I wasn't raised the way I was raised, I wouldn't have turned out this way. Or, you know, well, that person, if they hadn't have said that to me, I would not have retaliated or I would not have responded the way that I responded. And so the victim is always, oh, poor, pitiful me. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, I can give you some modern examples in our world today. Everybody does these, you know, bad things, and then they get caught or found out, and then all of a sudden, well, it's, it's not me. It's the system. You know, I shouldn't have been put in that situation. I wouldn't have done it if it weren't for, and they began to blame other people. That's what the victim does. And so tonight you can look at your situation if you're discouraged and you can ask yourself, am I playing the victim or am I playing the victor? Because the victor on the other side will receive the situation and filter it through the lens of Jesus. 
So the victor will say, okay, why is this happening? What is it that God is trying to teach me? You know, one of the blanks on your handout, I don't know if I have it yet. This morning, one of the blanks on your handout says, uh, Lord, why are you allowing me to suffer? And instead of saying that, we should ask, how is suffering allowing others to see the Lord? You see, in order for you to ask that question, how is my suffering helping other people see the Lord? It is that you've answered the question, what are you teaching me in this, God? What is it that you want me to see? Right? Because it's hard for us to process what God is doing in other people's lives if we don't have purpose in our own life. And so we've got to say, God, what is it that you're teaching me in this moment so that you can use it for your glory in the lives of other people around me? And so a victor takes the situation and says, God, what is it that you're teaching me? What is it you're trying to show me in this moment? And so we filter it through sovereignty. We filter it through the lens of Jesus and say, God, I want to, I want to please you. God, I want to do what is your will in this situation. And so the way that I'm going to do that is I need to, you know, I need to get some context, if you will, or some understanding about what you're doing in me. Is this discipline in me that, that you're showing me where I've been wrong? Is this a way that you're trying to encourage me? And then we learn from those circumstances. We look at the situation and we say, well, here's what happened. It was bad. And here's all this, you know, the things around it. And here's what I learned from that. And so, again, it can be the victim to where it's everybody else's fault. Woe is me. Uh, the world's against me. Or it can be the victor. Now, I'll tell you, I don't like to be around victims, people that are always negative and, oh, it's everybody else's fault. It's just discouraging, right? Nobody likes that. And so we see here that this discipline and this discouragement is a part of the journey. And so we can look at it in different ways because, you know, certainly we're going to have tough times. And so the writer of Hebrews essentially says, hey, we've got to tough it out. We, we've got to be, we've got to have endurance, realizing that the hardships we endure are disciplines that enable us to become who God created us to be. Now, it's really easy to say when we're not in the heat of the moment. It's very difficult to do when we are in the heat of the moment. Amen? And so when you've been in the valley, what can you only see? The mountains around you and how you're in the valley and there's mountains and you're not on the mountains. Or you're in the tough situation, you know, maybe, this, again, either discipline or discouragement, and you find yourself in that moment, you're discouraged, and you're having a pity party, and it's hard for you to see context outside of that. And so God puts people around us to help us to see that, and, and so we're, we're called to tough it out. Now, the good news is that you're not alone. If you look around, there's 50 people in here tonight or so that uh, God puts in our paths there's a, an entire church body here, your small group, your D group, that God puts in our path to help us make it through that. We were never intended to do it alone. And so essentially here tonight, the author's desire in our scripture is that the hearers will finish well. That we will run through the tape. Remember, we'll burst through the tape at the end of the race called life and that we will accomplish the mission in which God intends for us to accomplish. Uh, I served with the pastor uh, several years ago, and uh, he, at, towards the end of his life, was uh, put in a nursing facility. And uh, a few weeks before he passed away, he actually preached at that nursing facility. Pretty awesome, huh? I mean, what a way to go. What a blaze of glory. And so here's this pastor that God had used 
uh, for many, 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 many years, and then he passes away, and you know, his, one of the last things that he did before he passed away was he preached. It was encouraging to me. You know, I served with the man for many years, and then uh, I see how he ended well, that he finished well, that he ran through the tape. Uh, a few uh, weeks ago, uh, my grandfather passed away, and uh, so I preached his funeral. It was very difficult. And uh, so, but it was an opportunity for me to honor a man that influenced my life in a great way, someone who finished well. I remember uh, the last cognitive conversation that my grandfather had with me. Uh, we were sitting in his living room, and this is, uh, I don't know, about three or four weeks ago. And uh, so I asked him, I said, hey, Pop, what are you looking forward to? And he said, I'm looking forward to heaven. And so it was just an encouragement for me as, you know, so I was, as I was preparing for this and, you know, I get to this part uh, tonight and, you know, about finishing well and I think about my grandfather. And so there's probably people in your life that you would look to and you'd say, hey, you know, my grandfather finished well or my mom finished well or my friend finished well. You see, that's God's intention for us is that when, you know, we're still talking about Elijah and how he left, Right. He finished well, and God, God honored that life. And so for us, it's the same thing is that the desire for the hearer and the desire for us that God has is that we finish well. And so what he does is he expounds on how we do that. And so that's what we're going to put some meat on the bones tonight of how do we do that and what do we guard against that will prevent us from doing that. In other words, how can we, how can we do it? So in verse 12, this is what he says, chapter 12, verse 12 of Hebrews. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. So what the writer of Hebrews does here is he uses a portion of Isaiah to challenge the reader to hope in, the, uh, in God and hope in the salvation of God and to look to God for his way of holiness. Uh, this is not on your handout, but you can write it down, Isaiah chapter 35. If you want to know the scripture reference here, it's Isaiah chapter 35, verses 3 through 8, through eight, and I'll read those to you here. Strengthen the weak hands and make, the firm, uh, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning and uh, sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness." The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. And so the writer of Hebrews, as we've referenced many times, is extremely familiar with the Old Testament. And so he essentially quotes Isaiah chapter 35 here in referencing that and saying, hey, listen, strengthen the drooping hands, strengthen the weak need. So in other words, what he's saying is that those who are discouraged, because of their situation, <coughs> are called to hope in the coming justice and the blessings of God. So, you know, to reference again this morning, if we look at the news and we see all the bad things that are happening, as a believer, we know that all the bad things will be made right, that God's sovereign, and that ultimately justice will be served, and that God will do exactly how He sees fit in all of those situations. So we can't be discouraged by that if we really believe 
in the God that we serve. Amen? And so that's how that works. And so as he's writing this, he says, look, you can't be discouraged. These drooping hands and weak knees depict exhaustion. And so he's saying you can't be discouraged when you know it's going to happen. You've got to work through that. You've got to person That can't be the end for you. So these drooping hands and these weak knees, they depict exhaustion and discouragement. I recently turned 40 last year, and uh, I've, you know, been active all my life. And, you know, I like to be involved in different things, sports and stuff. And, but my knees, they just, they don't, they don't participate as well. And I want them to. In my mind, I think they should, but that's just not how that works. And maybe you can attest to that. You know, sometimes I try to stand up and my knees are like, now, time out. You've been doing this for 40 years. Can we not get a break here? And, uh, and so, you know, it's a mental picture, but it's also something that we all experience. You've, you've had an elbow that didn't work or a knee that was tired. And, and so it's, it's from exhaustion, right? It's from overuse. And so I can certainly blame myself for that, that I've, I've used my knees too much. And so these drooping hands and these weak knees, they depict exhaustion. Because here's something we don't talk about in the church a lot, and it is that people get tired. You know, the old saying uh, used to be that 10% of the church does 90% of the work. You ever heard that before? And if you notice, that sometimes can be true, that the same people do the same thing over and over and over and over and over. And sometimes people get tired. And so as we look at this, these this discouragement, this exhaustion, he, he says, hey, you can be strengthened. The strengthening is a sign of determination and that you can finish well, that you can overcome through God. And so it's okay. It's normal. And so if you're near here tonight and you say, I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I'm discouraged, it's okay to be that. It is okay to be that. It's just what you do with that and how you process that is what is important. So this word picture used in verse 12, helps us to understand that the Christian life is an exhausting struggle. That it is an exhausting struggle that because we deal with humans, you know, there is no plan B. The church is the plan. It's not plan A. It is the plan. And so the church is what God will use to redeem the world, to reach the world. And so sometimes that can be hard, that, that we can be rejected. That happens a lot. That we can be discouraged, that we can be offended, that we can be damaged. That happens. Because we're human. And so this exhausting part that we encounter is normal. You see, sometimes this exhaustion can be physically. That, you know, like I said, 10% of the church does 90% of the work. That you can serve, 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 serve. And you can serve yourself to exhaustion. That you can be involved in too many things. But it can also be emotional and spiritual. You know, a few weeks ago I said this, that if you are not uh, if you're not engaged in spiritual battle, in other words, if you're not uh, you know, under attack sometimes, then that just means that you're not in the battle. Remember I said that? We talked about that a few weeks ago. And that if you're involved in doing things for the kingdom of God, that the enemy is certainly going to take notice of that and try to discourage you. We talked about this a few weeks ago. And so sometimes we can be phys- or emotionally or spiritually exhausted. 
That the battle that Ephesians 6 talks about that's not against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities and powers of principalities. That's why in the Old Testament, when, when these uh, Moses and, and these guys would be in battle, that they would have someone physically come beside them, right? And they would help hold their hands up because they got tired. A patriarch of the Old Testament was tired. It's normal that spiritually that there would be difficult times, that they would be discouraged, that they would be spiritually exhausted. The, the word strengthen that he used here comes from our word orthopedic, which simply means to make upright or to straighten out, to make straight. So when you, if you think about breaking a bone and it, it becomes misaligned, well, you know, an orthopedic, what they do is they straighten it. They put it back in line. And so that strengthen that he uses here means to put back into line. He says, make straight paths, verse 13, for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And so when we're strengthened, when we're made straight, we're able to make straight paths. We're able to make straight paths. You see, he's talking about this this path and, and the path of life. Remember, it's a long distance run. And this path of life, this run, that uh, Christian walk that we're involved in, it's much easier if it is a straight line. There was an engineer in Wednesday night service, and I asked the question, what is the closest point between uh, point A and point B? And he said, a straight line. You've all heard that before. The, the closest point between A and B is a straight line, right? Well, it's the same thing for us. If Jesus, verse 2, is our goal looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, if Jesus is the objective, Romans 8, 29, be conformed to the image of Christ, Genesis 1, 26, let us create man in our image. If Jesus is the objective, if we're to be like Jesus, and he is the path in which we are to pursue, well, what happens if you can imagine this middle aisle being as straight as it is, and Jesus is the goal, so at the, at the doors, that's where I'm going. If I walk straight down that path, I will get to Jesus quicker. I will be where Jesus is faster. I will be where Jesus wants me to be uh, essentially you know, in no time because I'm taking a straight line. But what happens in the Christian walk is this, is we get to going down this path, and we're walking down this middle aisle, and then all of a sudden we get to distracted or we get tired you know we may stop and we may sit in the pew for a second and we say God you know I I know that's where Jesus is at but I'm tired right now and I'm taking a break or we may we may start walking and then someone you know may be in one of these pews and they may call our attention over to the side and we may stop we as a matter of fact we might even go this way right we may get way over off the path and say well I know I'm supposed to be going that way but there's a distraction over here It happens with everybody. I mean, you know, it's easier to see it in here as an analogy, but that's the path that the writer of Hebrews is talking about is that we are to go, when we're strengthened, we are going down the right path. But when we are weak, we're distracted easily. We get tired easily. And so in essence, the writer is saying, pursue ways that are directed straight towards the goal. If it doesn't help you get to Jesus, it shouldn't be in your life. That's what he's saying. But we fill our lives with many things that can become distractions. They can be good things, but they can become distractions. So he says, pursue ways that are directed straight towards the goal. And then he quotes a a verse out of Proverbs. You can write it down. It's Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 26, which says, Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. So he says, pursue paths that lead you straight towards the goal. Straight paths for us 
First of all, they are for ourselves, but they're also for those that we have influence over. Remember Paul said this, follow me as I follow Christ. Remember that's what Paul said. And so there's people that we are following. There's always someone ahead of us in the path that we're following. But there's also people that are behind us that we're leading. That's, that's what D group is, is that we're leading people as we're following Jesus. And then those people begin to lead people as they follow Jesus. And so follow me as I follow Christ. And so as that happens, it's that we're pursuing these straight paths because we're going to where Jesus is going. But then as we're going, the Great Commission, we're also leading people by our attitudes, actions, and words. And so those that we have influence over, we're directing them as to which path to take. And so this simply means, you know, pursuing straight paths. It means to remove those things in our lives that hinder our walk with God. Things that hinder our walk. Things that distract us. Things that discourage us. It's this reference that he gives to the lame is another image of exhaustion, of being tired, or the crippling effect of spiritual discouragement. So have you ever... Have you ever tried to do something for God and you got discouraged? Maybe you want to start a new ministry. You want to be a part of the ministry. Uh, Maybe, I don't know, there's so many options there. But you just got discouraged. Maybe nothing happened and it just didn't go the way you thought it did. Maybe you were involved in a very effective, very, uh, you know, this ministry and, and then all of a sudden you just... It just didn't end the way, that, or it wasn't going the way that you thought. It didn't start the way you thought it should start, and then you got discouraged. It can have a crippling effect, right? Because what happens, because we're human and we're emotional, and you know, we just say, well, if that's the way it's going to be, I'm just not going to participate. I mean, I've heard people say that before. Well, you know, it just didn't go the way that I thought, and so I'm just going to sit back and just, just whatever happens, happens. You see, when we become discouraged, we get distracted. We get distracted. And we start to see the things that we don't need to see, the things that will discourage us. When we get discouraged, we begin to see things that, you know, in the moment, we only see the moment, right? When we're discouraged, we only see the thing that discouraged us, the person or the situation or the circumstances. And we start to look in in that moment, and we get tunnel vision. That's why we need context. That's why we need people around us because we only see in that moment. And we, when we only see in that moment, we then lose sight of what? The clear path of Jesus that he intends for us to walk. And so we get distracted. And when we get distracted, we can't see clearly. You know, if I'm, if I'm over here on this side and I've, I've been, you know, distracted down this path and I know that I need to walk down the center, center aisle, well, if there's a bunch of people sitting here, it's going to be hard for me to see what's actually at the end of that center aisle, right? It's going to be difficult for me to see Jesus if I've got all these other obstacles in front of me. If you and I are going to run a race well, we've got to have a clear path. We've got to know that, hey, this is the way that leads me to where God wants me to go. And no one would intentionally put barriers in their own way, right? We, we don't choose the path that has all these, I mean, right? We, intentionally, we don't. If we have a choice, we want to choose the path that's going to give us the uh, least resistance. You, you know, that's an old saying. And we want to say, here's the clear path. So if we have a choice, if we're going to run well, we, we want to have a clear path. We don't want to intentionally 
put things. So if the runner chooses the path full of potholes and bumps, well, what they're doing is choosing the more dangerous path. In other words, if we choose the wrong path, if we choose the dangerous path, then our spiritual condition can certainly get worse. Can get worse. So we get discouraged. We get on the sidelines. We sit in the back, maybe. We stop interacting with people as much as we used to. The smile's not as bright on our face. We're tired. We're discouraged. As I thought about this this week, and I thought, you know, so, I mean, why are there so many churches? I mean, there's more churches in Mississippi per square mile than anywhere else in the world. I pass a lot of churches on the way here. So do you. Why are there so many churches? Why are those churches? How, how come we have so many churches and yet Fox News keeps reporting all, you know, we'll just continue with that. All the bad things that are going on. How is that possible? If there are so many churches... Is it possible, and I've, I've been in a lot of churches on the coast and across the state, is it possible that those, a lot of those churches are just full of people doing nothing? Is that possible? Is it possible that either they're unsaved or they're followers but discouraged followers I don't know here. I, I mean, only God knows a man's heart. But as I thought about this, do we have a lot of people in these churches that say they're followers of Jesus, but at some point things didn't go their way, and so what they decided to do is just sit on the sidelines? You see, that's what a lot of churches have become today. They're not hospitals for sinners. They're museums for saints. Think about it we got a lot of churches that spend a lot of money on their buildings and a lot of money on their sales. I've been to a lot of churches, and one of the, one of the, you'll notice that a lot of these churches, they like to put their budget out front. And for those churches that like to do that, I like to read it. And so I'll get it, and I'll read it. And guess what? 90% or more of the money that they spend is on themselves because it's a museum for saints. It's, hey, look at us. I mean, even, our, I mean, it's, it's the craziest thing is we come to church and we, we dress up and, hey, brother, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? All the while, you know, there's $7 in your checking account and your wife just yelled at you and your kids don't respect you, right? I mean, I can just make up some scenarios, but unfortunately, they're all true is that we, we show up to church, which is supposed to be a hospital for sinners, but if people aren't good at the church function or they're not good at the way church ought to go, well, then what happens is they get discouraged and, and they get you know on the sidelines, and, and essentially what happens is they become spiritually disabled. And so we got a lot of people who've been discouraged. It didn't go the way that they thought it should or the way that they wanted it to do. And so they did this. They crossed their arms and they sat on the sideline and said, well, I'm just not going to participate. Or I'm not, I'm not going to do anything. I'm discouraged. They become disabled. They're not participating in the things of God, which is why, you know, as a joke, I said 10% do 90% of the work. But in essence, that's why. Is because... When we get discouraged, we can only see that situation. 
And so what we resolve to do is we make a decision in that situation to do nothing. And we get discouraged and we say, well, I can't let anybody know that I'm discouraged because we're a museum for saints, not a hospital for sinners. And so if I, I can't be honest and say, I'm tired, I'm worn out, I'm very discouraged right now, I'm spiritually dry, I'm, I'm not spending time in the Word of God, I'm not enjoying prayer because I'm not spending time in prayer, I'm, I'm hurt right now, you offended me. We don't, we don't do that. We, we, don't, we just, we're not honest. And we show up and sit in lines instead of circles, and we pretend that everything's okay. And in essence, what we're doing is pretending it's okay to be discouraged. If, I mean, if you, if you walk for a second in the Christian life, you're going to run into discouragement. Why is that? Because there is an enemy that seeks to destroy you. And he wants to do everything he can to discourage you and to disable you and to make you ineffective. And he's done a fantastic job to a lot of people of making them completely ineffective for the gospel. And the writer of Hebrews says, guess what? It is normal for you to be discouraged. It is normal for you to get exhausted, to have drooping hands and weak knees. And guess what? You were never meant to do this alone. And so when you get discouraged, you need to tap someone on the shoulder. You need to raise your hand and say, I'm tired. I need you to pray for me. This is what I told the Wednesday night crowd. I said, you know, maybe tonight when you leave, maybe you need to, to go to somebody and say, I need you to pray for me. I'm tired. Maybe, maybe you need to verbalize that for the first time. If you want to come to me and, and tell me that tonight, please do. I'll pray for you. I'm not going to ask you. Here's why we don't do that, though. I'm not going to ask you, really, tell me more about that. Why are you tired? And then I'm going to try to fix your problem. I'm not trying to do that. If you come to me tonight or whenever and you say, man, I need you to pray for me. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say, absolutely, I definitely will pray for you. If, I, if you would like to talk to me about anything, I'd be happy to listen. And that's the end of our conversation if you want it to be. And that's the way it ought to be. Is that we ought to be available to, to be honest with each other. I ought to be able to go to Ray and say, I'm tired, Ray. Man, I'm burned out. I'm I'm exhausted. I need you to pray for me. And Ray's response should be, no problem, Matt. I'd be happy to listen if you'd like to talk about it. Otherwise, I'm just going to pray for you. But no, this is what we do. Well, why is Matt tired? Well, what's been going on in his life? I mean, you know, we're, we're, we got the Spirit of God inside of us, and so we should just persevere. We should just blaze through. I mean, our pastor took a sabbatical a few years ago, right? Anybody can get tired. It's possible to get tired. It's okay. It doesn't make you any less of a person or of a Christian to say that you're exhausted. You need to talk about that. You need to share that. You need, you need to be honest about that. When I, I, I'm going to be honest. I got tired. Several years ago, I was, I was burned out. I was injured. I had been damaged. People had damaged me. I needed to heal. And so I came and sat in the back. I needed somebody to listen and not give me advice. I needed somebody to say, hey, Matt, you can raise your hand and be tired. It's okay. Right? Because, again, we're supposed to have it all together. But none of us do. 
And so I sat in the back and, you know, I met Rod and Brian at an event away from the church. And, you know, I had lunch with Tony a few times. And so I was able to just sit and I was a part of a class and it was good. It was therapeutic for me. And, you know, when time, when it felt okay for me to talk about it, when I was ready to talk about it, I got to share with Rod and, and Tony and, and a few people, hey, this is, this is why I'm tired. This is why I'm damaged. I need you to help me. I need you to, I need you to help me pick the pieces up and put them back on. Here's what God wants to do in my life. Remember, I, I mentioned this a few uh, Sundays ago that God can, do you still have a plan for me? Remember I mentioned that? And so that's God putting people around us and saying, hey, Matt, it's, it's okay to be tired. It's okay. That's what we need in our life is we need people around us who say, Kurt, it's okay, man. It's okay to be tired. I want to come beside you. I want to walk with you. I want to encourage you. You don't have to talk about it until you're ready to talk about it. I don't need to know the details of why you failed. I don't, know, I don't need to know the details of why you're tired. Me knowing that doesn't change anything for you. Now, when you're ready for me to know it, then I'm, I'm ready to listen. And so I'm, I'm serious tonight. If at the end of this, you need to come to me and just say, I need you to pray for me, I'm tired. Or I just need you to pray for me. Know that I'll be happy to talk to you, but my response will be okay. Because I'll be happy to pray for you. Because I need you to pray for me. Sometimes I get tired. Sometimes I get exhausted. I mean, the, the, the Bible says that the uh, fields are wide into harvest, but laborers are few. And that is true. And so in the walk, we need to come together. We need to encourage each other. And instead of tearing people down, man, can you believe they miss church? Well, maybe they're tired. Man, can you believe they, they you know, lashed out at me and, and, you know, I didn't even know what's going on? Well, maybe there's a reason that they're upset. Maybe the burden of their life right now is very heavy. And if you knew them well enough, you would know that, right? And so we, we can't look on the exterior and say, oh, well, they've got it all together or their life is falling apart. We need to get close and say, I want to pray for you and I want you to know that I'm here to help you and to encourage you, to, to help you be who God wants you to be. And if that means me knowing things about your situation, I'm willing to listen. But if it just means that I stand here and I'm just, you just know that I'm standing beside you, then that's enough. That's enough. It doesn't need to turn into gossip or whatever. It just needs, you just need to know that someone is standing beside you and that it's normal. We've all been through those moments. Don't resolve to become disabled. Don't resolve to sit on the sidelines. You see, we, we've got to free ourselves of these obstacles and these dangers that are designed to disable us. The Bible says that the enemy uh, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. And if you let him, he will do that to your life. And so we need to free ourselves of these obstacles. We don't, we don't need to put any undue situations in our life that are going to prevent us from being who God wants us to be. Uh, one of the things that we're notorious for, everyone in this room, is overloading our schedules. How can you be available to do something for God when you're so stinking busy? I'm, I'm talking to myself. I mean, we got a million things that we're doing, and yet we say, God, I, I want to be available for you. Well, how can we be available for God when we filled our schedule with all of these other things? And in essence, sometimes they're obstacles to godliness. 
And so we must arrange our lives so that sin's opportunities to ensnare us are significantly reduced. We must arrange our lives so that sin's opportunities are significantly reduced. There's several ways that that can look, uh, but if there is a propensity for sin, a particular sin in your life, you need to have stop gaps in your life. I mean, this is a whole other sermon, but you need to have you need to have accountability. You need to have uh, transparency in that area of your life, as uncomfortable as it may be. You need someone that can have access to that part of your life that's going to he- help keep you accountable. That, that's what that looks like in, in reducing sin's opportunity, is you've got to have somebody else who knows your business. Now, like I said, I, you know, I may not have your neighbor beside you may not have enough life credit in your life for you to spill the beans, and that's completely okay, but there needs to be somebody. And so how do we finish well? How do we do that? We want to run through the tape at the end. How do we do it? Well, we finish well by doing this. Very simple. Pursuing peace and holiness. By pursuing peace and holiness. He says in verse 14, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so holiness is expressed as vital for both our relationship with God and our relationships with others. Holiness. Holiness. That, that's, that ought to be the target of your life. That's the target. That ought to be the target of my life is to live a life that is marked by holiness. You see, we cannot have peace with other people when we choose an unholy path. Well, how is that true? We cannot have peace with other people when we choose an unholy path. Well, think about it this way. If I am pursuing selfishness, or greed, or whatever else that is not holy, well, it is going to affect my character, right? If I'm pursuing unholy things, it's going to affect my character. And if I have poor character, I'm not going to treat you correctly. I'm not going to be honest with you, or I'm not going to treat you uh, the right way. If I have poor character, right? I mean, you've, you've encountered poor character in your life, and they, they don't play by the same rules. And so it's the same way. If I'm pursuing an unholy path, I'm not going to be able to adequately treat you the way that God intends for me to treat you because poor character can't treat you holy, right? And so we can't have peace because of that. We cannot have peace with each other if you're pursuing Jesus and I'm pursuing Matt. And so character and peace are woven together as a single garment in the soul. When you have character, you have peace When you have unholy character, you don't have peace in your life. And so as we pursue peace and we pursue holiness, it it brings us not only in line with God vertically, but it also brings us in line with others horizontally. And so this pursuit of holiness is how God shapes us through sanctification. So he takes the sharp edges off of Matt. He uh, you know, works situations out in my life to where uh, he makes me more like Jesus, right? And so when he does that, I can then adequately or effectively communicate with you in a manner of which God intends. So when my character is in line with the way that God wants it to be, then God will get, begin to shine holiness through my life. And that's what sanctification looks like, is God slowly but surely changing me or molding me more towards holiness. 
So he says in verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So how do we finish well? Well, we pursue Peace and holiness. Well, how do we pursue peace and holiness? I'm going to give you three things tonight as we wrap this up. How do we pursue peace and holiness? Number one, we see to it that no one misses grace. How do we pursue peace and holiness? We make sure, we see to it that no one misses grace. So just for clarity, grace is getting what we don't deserve. So that means that we give to others what they don't deserve. How do we pursue peace? We give forgiveness, like last week, Pastor Tony talked about Sunday morning, we give forgiveness when it's not earned, because no one can earn that, right? And so we grant forgiveness because we've been granted forgiveness. We give what is not deserved. We give love to people that are hard to love. We give grace to people uh, that have offended us. We give forgiveness. So we see to it that no one misses grace. Others should receive the grace of God because of how grace flows from our lives. That's how no one misses grace, is that they experience grace through the grace that flows through our lives. We were you know, in Wednesday night service, and one of the prayer requests was, uh, there was a lady that had been in Walmart, and there was this couple there that had gotten mad about something. I, I don't know what happened. And uh, anyway, he got very angry, and so it caused this really big situation. And so the lady that was there Wednesday night said, uh, so I just, you know, I could tell the wife was very distraught, and, you know, it was a bad situation. And so she stepped up to the lady and, and uh, engaged the lady and was very gracious towards the lady. That's what that looks like. See to it that no one misses grace because people experience grace because of the grace that flows from our lives. That that people ought to look, that's, that's the attraction of the gospel, is that we live in such a way that others who don't know God will want to know God because they know us or because they encounter us, right? So that we, that grace flows out, that there's something different about us, that we respond to situations differently, that we respond to people differently, that we act differently, that we live differently, not because we want to be weird, but because of the grace that flows out of our life, that it is reflected, and other people see it, and they say there's something different about that person. Seeing that no one misses grace. Now, it's not saying that everybody's going to receive grace. This is not universal salvation. It's that everyone is exposed to it. Remember, the church is the plan, not plan A. The church is the plan. And so where you're planted in your life, where you live, where you work, where you recreate, where you have social time, it is not by accident that you're involved in those circles and your sphere of influence is because of the opportunity for you to expose people in that sphere of influence to the grace of God that should be flowing out of your life. That's what that looks like. How do we pursue peace and holiness? To make sure that no one misses grace. Number two, see to it that no bitter root grows up. How do we pursue peace? We avoid bitterness. How do we pursue holiness? We avoid bitterness. See to it that no bitter root grows up. He references 
Deuteronomy 29, 18, if you want to write that down here. Again, he references Deuteronomy 29, 18. And so here's what happens with bitterness. We can choose with bitterness either to get better from our experiences. So remember, the victim says, woe is me, and blame somebody else. The, vic- the victor says, okay, what can I learn from this? What is God teaching me? And so with bitterness, we can either, with situations, we can either say, this bad situation happened, God taught me this through it, so I will become better on the other side of it, sanctification through holiness, or we can become bitter about the situation. So he says, see that no root of bitterness springs up. You see, when we're bitter, here's how you can tell the difference. When, when you're bitter, when I'm bitter, what happens is we tend to regret being involved in situations and circumstances. When we're bitter, there is regret present. I wish that had never happened. I wish I'd never done that for them. I wish they had never said that. There's the victim kind of mentality that plays through that. But bitterness has regret involved. I wish that would have never happened. I wish I'd never done that. And so there's no gratitude in bitterness of I'm thankful that I learned that, you know, because of that. If if you listen to people's situation, with bitterness, you regret. But when you intend to get better, we're grateful that God allowed us to be a part of the situation or circumstance in order to grow us. And so when we intend to get better from it, there's gratitude. I mean, everybody has tough situations. We've talked about that. When that happens, it's how you respond to that that really determines bitterness or getting better. That you can look at that difficult situation and you can say, you know what, it, it, it happened. i got to get better from this. God, what are you going to teach me? What do you want me to learn from this? And so there, the bitterness or, or the better is how we respond to it. And so we look at the situation and we can regret that it happened and not learn from it or we can get better from it and grow from it. And so how do we pursue peace and holiness? Well, we do it by getting better from the experiences and especially the discouragements that take place in our life. This is easily identifiable in people uh, and how they reference their tough times. If they blame this bad thing happened and this was, you know, so-and-so's fault, well, then there's bitterness there. But if they say, you know, this was a really hard time in my life, this was a tough part, and, uh, but God brought me through it and, and, and I learned whatever, then they got better from There's no bitter involved. There's no bitterness involved in that. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief produces repentance. Worldly grief produces death. And so bitterness regrets. Holiness gets better. And so regret despises the consequences of the circumstance. The regret looks back and says, I can't believe that happened. Should have never happened. Despise the circumstance, the, the result of the, or the consequence of the circumstance. And then, again, on the other side, what true repentance does is it requires hatred of sin. You can't get better from a situation when you're in love with the, the sin of the situation. So we have, to, we have to hate the sin. True repentance is, again, just simply turning and going the other direction. And so regret is that we learn from it, that we get better from it. Well, how do we get better from it? We identify the fact that it was, in fact, sin. 
and that we should turn from that. And so he uses the word defile here, which communicates the idea of contamination. And that's what happens when bitterness is present, is you are contaminated. You can't have peace if there's bitterness. So how do we pursue peace and holiness? We see that no one misses grace, that we don't allow bitterness to take root. And then last but not least tonight, we see to it that no one falls into the patterns of Esau. That we come alongside each other. That we say, listen, when you're tired, when you're exhausted, when you're discouraged, I want you to know that you can tell me. And I'll listen as much as you want to tell me. But if nothing else, you just acknowledge the fact that you're discouraged and I can pray for you. That no one falls into the path. Why did he bring up Esau here? You see, Esau is an example of a person who treats the honor of an heir lightly. You know the story. Esau was the first uh, heir to uh, his father's inheritance. And yet for such a measly price of a temporary meal, he says, yeah, you can have my birthright. It's a lesson in honor of the heir. He threw away this precious privilege on a whim. You know, he's tired and he comes in. And You see, we must be careful not to reject the honored status that we have as children of God for momentary craving, cravings. And so we have to see to it that we encourage each other, that we don't allow each other to fall into the same patterns of Esau. And so this is a warning, certainly for us, but also for those that we influence. Because in order for us to finish well, well, we've got to hold accountable those around us to holiness. We've got to hold each other accountable to holiness. You know, we learned something about Esau here, that Esau was sexually promiscuous. That, you know, there's some extra-biblical writings that talk about Esau that obviously the writer of Hebrews was familiar with and uh, that Esau did things that he shouldn't have done. But Esau didn't have anybody apparently in his life that said, hey, Esau, listen, man, you need to write the ship. You need to straighten this out. I mean, if you're in D group, you just read through 1 Samuel uh, 1 through 3 in chapter 8 this last week. And in those verses, we learn what? That Samuel was anointed of the Lord, that God spoke to Samuel. And what did God tell Samuel? God told Samuel, hey, Eli is, he's doing some, he's allowing things to happen that don't need to happen. Remember, Eli's sons were, uh, they were messing things up. They were doing a lot of things they shouldn't do, suffice it to say. And so there needed to be somebody in there saying, look, you got to right the ship. Eli, you need to get your boys in line. There needs to be this accountability that you can't just allow uh, people that God has given you favor and influence in their life, you can't just allow them to go off the deep end and not say anything about it, right? That's what, you know, being held accountable, being together and, and pushing people towards holiness, encouraging people towards holiness. That's why we have to be honest with each other and transparent with each other. That when that time comes that you say, I'm tired and I want to talk about it, I'm exhausted and I want to talk about it, that we can help each other work through that in order to have holiness as the objective at the end. Not that people become spiritually disabled and sit in the back and think that it's okay to sit on the uh, premises of God instead of standing on the promises and being actively engaged in their faith. 
That we should never allow that to take place in our life. That people that we know and we love to be disabled and stay that way. But that we should encourage them to move forward, to challenge them to be who God wants them to be. And so our takeaways for tonight is don't allow the temporary to rob you of the eternal. Look, don't let the momentary affliction that takes place in your life to rob you of the great things that God intended for you to accomplish. Run through the tape at the end. Don't let the distractions of life prohibit you from accomplishing God's amazing plan for you. Remember, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, says God, it, God says that you are His masterpiece, His poema. And so, a masterpiece, you're the masterpiece. I'm the masterpiece of the King. Don't let the temporary rob you of the eternal. I don't know what's going on in your life tonight, but it's probably temporary, right? That God can use it to encourage you. God can use it to grow you. God can use it to better you. Now, it doesn't make it any easier. I'm, I'm not making light of that. Life is hard. And in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This light momentary affliction. So don't allow the temporary to rob you of the eternal. Number two, bitterness is the fruit of a corrupted root. So if there's bitterness in your life, there's a heart issue. There's, there's a problem with your heart. And so bitterness is just the fruit of that. Remember, bitterness has regret, but repentance has better. You want to get better from it. So bitterness is the fruit. Number three, the bitterness, or I'm sorry, the difference between regret and repentance is how we respond. Regret doesn't learn from it. Repentance turns away from it. We acknowledge it for what it is. It's sin. We turn the other way. We repent. We turn towards Jesus. So the difference between regret and repentance is simply how we respond. And, you know, if you title tonight's study, I would say it's finished well. And so as we end tonight, run with the end in mind. Finish well. You may have to remove some things. There may be some things in your life that are obstacles, but God intends for you to finish well, and so you, you, you need to run with the end in mind. If you use our analogy for tonight, think about this middle aisle and think about it straight, how straight this is, and that it's so, easily, uh, so easy for us to become distracted and tired and discouraged. That's normal. But what is not normal is for you to allow that to cause you to become disabled. That you need to raise your hand and say, I'm tired. I'm discouraged. I'm exhausted. Please pray for me. And when you're willing and comfortable that you want to talk about that, you need to find somebody that you trust and that loves you and that you can sit down and say, I'm tired and here's why I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm discouraged. Here's why I'm discouraged. And have a healthy conversation on how to get you back on track to where God wants you to be. And so, again, the offer stands. If you're discouraged, if you're exhausted, all you have to say is pray for me. And I'll write your name down and I'll pray for you. Maybe you want to go to somebody you're sitting by and say, hey, I'm tired. Will you please pray for me? Maybe you sit down this week and talk about it. Maybe you just need prayer right now. But raise your hand. It's normal. If, you're, if you don't get tired, that probably means you're not doing anything. 
Okay, and so it's okay to do that. It's okay to be discouraged. Life is full of discouragement. It's how we process that as to how we get over it. And so God doesn't want you to be disabled. He wants you to be effective. He wants you to run through the tape. And the way that we do that is together. Amen? Let's pray. God, we, uh, Lord, we love you tonight. God, we thank you that you didn't save us to leave us alone, but God, that you put...